Welcome to Beaver Lodge Alliance's sermon podcast. We're so glad to join you. This is the latest sermon. We pray that you would receive encouragement, exhortation, and that Jesus would speak to you through this sermon. Enjoy. Well, today is a good day. Happy Father's Day. Hey, (laughs) it's good. Happy Father's Day. Um, for those of you joining us online, happy Father's Day to you as well. Uh, it's exciting to, uh, to be able to join you on a day like this. Um, so I'm speaking today about a topic that is quite appropriate to Father's Day, and it's biblical masculinity. Biblical masculinity. So in our series, we want to break down what masculinity looks like when you think about it from a biblical perspective, and we're looking at the way of Jesus when it comes around to masculinity. So if you're a little older, um, what, uh, sorry, let me ask this question. What do you think of when you think of the word masculinity? Who do you think of? What kind of a person do you think of when you hear the word masculinity? If you're a little bit older, maybe you think of like a John Wayne type of a person or a Clint Eastwood, something like that, make my day, kind of a, a masculinity. If you're a little younger, maybe you think of Dwayne the Rock Johnson or Jason Momoa, something like that. And whether you're young or old, maybe you think of Tom Cruise. He just had a new movie sequel just come out about fighter jets and adrenaline and things blowing up, and so maybe you think of him. Well, those are real men's men, aren't they? They ooze masculinity, or so it would seem. What are the actual traits that we would define as masculine traits? When we think of masculinity, do we think of strength? Do we think of power? Do we think of stature or prominence? Do we think of guys working out in a gym or, or fast cars? About a year and a half ago, I got this gift from my family for Christmas. And uh, you won't be able to see it from where you're at, but I will tell you about it. Um, I was given, I, I was made the Lord over a square foot of land in Scotland. So I don't know if it transfers to Canada or not, but at least if I was standing on that one uh, plot of land, I could say, I am Lord Gregory Warren Clark. And I actually have said this in my, in my home last year. I also got my master's degree. And so I, I've told my children, they can now refer to me as Lord and Master. Isn't that great? Now it actually hasn't actually taken up, and I don't think they've done it once. But I'm hopeful that one day, maybe, they might refer to me something like that. Is this what masculinity is all about? Is it about these type of things? Well, let's take a look at biblical masculinity. Oh, there's a lot to it, and I'm not going to be able to unpack all of it. But take a look with me at a passage that I think speaks uh, to masculinity. Now, this passage speaks specifically to husbands, uh, but I think it says a lot to, to what biblical masculinity is supposed to look like. So if you're, if you're not a husband today, and if you're not even a man today, I want you to still please listen, because there's a lot of good stuff in what's going to be said today. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5. So if you've got your Bibles with you, it's going to be up on the screen behind me as well, uh, but you can pop over there in your Bibles if you want to. Uh, while you're getting there, uh, this passage is often spoken about at weddings, and it causes no end of grief not because of the directive to husbands, but because of one word that's used in this passage that's a directive towards wives. 
And that's the word submit. Even as I say that word, some of us kind of go, mm, right? When we say submit, we kind of go, mm, a little bit. And here's the passage. It's in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, and it speaks to wives. And it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, it, whenever I'm, I'm doing a wedding, if I'm preaching out of this passage of Scripture, I never start with this. Because I find if I start with this, half the room just shuts down completely. It's problematic, isn't it? But if you read the whole passage in context, it becomes less problematic. Because just before this passage, it says this in verse 21. Speaking to both the husband and the wife, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Both the wife and the husband, the male and the female, are called to submit to one another. It loses a lot of its problematic nature, doesn't it, when we actually start with that part of it. Both of you submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Well, this verse, verse 21, really sets up the section that we're about to speak about pertaining to husbands. So I want you to hear this passage of Scripture, including verse 21. So here's how Ephesians reads. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then skip down to the part for husbands, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you, must also, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, if I were to go through this passage, we would have to spend the next few months actually going through all that is in here. It's chock full of strange and amazing and wonderful stuff. But what I want to draw out of this for us today is what the husband is supposed to do here, because I think it speaks to us about what biblical masculinity looks like. And the husband is called to submit himself to his wife the same way Christ has submitted himself to the church. And the problem that we have, though, is that often we view the word submission or the act of submission as weakness. But I want you to consider something for a moment. In the book of Philippians, Paul describes Jesus, who is God, powerful and almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth, the highest high and the greatest great, as humbling himself. Jesus Christ humbling himself, taking on the nature of a servant, and submitting himself to death on a cross. Now, would we call Jesus weak? Jesus has just submitted himself to the cross. Would we call him weak? Well, of course we would not call him weak. Jesus is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is all-powerful, and yet voluntarily submits himself to death on the cross on our behalf. And why is that? 
If it's not weakness that drives Jesus, because Jesus, of course, is not weak, then what drives Jesus' submission to death? Is it not the love of Jesus? Is it not the love of our Heavenly Father? Look at this passage, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Submission driven by love is the conquering force. It's the powerful force that marks the way of Jesus. So look back now at Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, one of the problems we have in the English language is that we actually have quite a a rudimentary language. The English language is actually quite overly simplistic. The Greek language, though, that the, the New Testament was originally written in is a very complex language. We have a word for love. If I say I I love my car, and I say I love my wife, and I love chicken, right? Am I using the same kind of love in all those ways? No, I love my wife differently than I love my car, hopefully, right? But we only have this one word, love. But in the Greek, there's lots of different words for love. And the Greek word in this passage that's translated translated as love is the word, uh, I'm not going to say it quite right, but it's agape. Agapeo is what it is. Agapeo. It's, a, it's a, the verb form of the word agape, which is the Greek word for sacrificial, selfless love. It's love that demands nothing in return. It's love that gives sacrificially. It's the love that Jesus displayed when he voluntarily submitted himself to death on the cross. Husbands, Agapeo, sorry, it's a hard word. Agape is easy, but this one's husbands agapeo, your wives, just as Christ agapeo the church and gave himself up for her. Now, when this passage is read at weddings, I've talked to you earlier about how it causes difficulty because of the wives submit to your husband's part But it's partly difficult because this passage has been used out of context to support male domination over women. Wives, submit to your husbands. That means men, you guys are the lords of your castle, and women should just shut up and do what they're told. That's what this passage has been used to say to people. But it's not at all what this passage says. This passage speaks to both husbands and wives and gives an even greater command to the husbands, love your wives selflessly, sacrificially, the way that Jesus loved the church. Not exerting power, not exerting control, not just leading and subjugating their wives, but doing this sacrificially, not control, not power, not subjugation. It's the kind of relationship that Jesus has with the church. See, Jesus' kind of leadership with the church is not about power and control. It's not about subjugation or manipulation. Jesus leads with sacrificial love and servanthood. 
submitting himself to death on the cross on behalf of the church. That's the kind of leadership Jesus directs husbands to have towards their wives and men to have in general with everybody. Leadership marked by the Jesus way is leadership that is sacrificial and that is serving. And that kind of sacrificial love is not weakness. That kind of submission is not weakness. It's actually the essence of biblical masculinity. And let me show you what I mean. When we think of manly men in the Bible, we might think of someone like Samson. I don't know if you know the story of Samson. He was one of the judges. He was a strong, powerful man. He, he wrestled lions for fun. It was just fantastic, right? But I don't think that's actually our picture of biblical masculinity. I want to show you a different picture of biblical masculinity. I want to suggest two other people in the Old Testament that I think actually were leaders in this realm, or they were supposed to be anyways. The first is Adam. Now, he didn't do a really great job at this, but if you, if you think of Adam, Adam, the, the name Adam in the Hebrew language, so the New Testament was in Greek, Old Testament was in Hebrew. The name Adam comes from the word Adama, which means earth or dirt. So Adam's name is actually like of the earth, of the dirt, right? That sounds manly, doesn't it? Like dirty, gross, grimy, like this just, found, it just sounds manly. It's, just, it's a fantastic, right? But I love this. This is such a wonderful thing. The word Adam, even though it was Adam's name, it went on to mean man. So throughout the, the Old Testament, oftentimes when you see man doing this or mankind, it's a, ver, it's a form of the word Adam. So Adam, his name actually means man. So God made a man and named him man. I think it's so awesome. Like he just named him man. Don't you think that's, that's I think that's really fun. I, I really like when people name their animals like what they are. Like, I love when I meet somebody's dog, and I'm like, what's your dog's name? He's like, dog? That's so fantastic. Or you meet a horse, and you're like, what's the horse's name? Horse? That's just so wonderful, right? I just love that. And God creates Adam and calls him man, and then says, Adam, name the animals. And Adam's like, dog, cat, horse. Isn't that great? I think that's so fantastic that God made a man, named him man, and then man named the animals horse and dog. And it was just so, like, none of them were named Fred. It was like, this one's horse. It's so great. So I don't know. If you guys don't find that's funny, that's fine. I think that's just hilarious. Anyhow. So here we have Adam being the first man, both in name and in reality. And we could say that Adam was meant to be, and I think he was meant to be, the epitome of what men were supposed to be like. I mean, think about it. God makes the first man. He's going to make him in this mold. Like, you're going to be like the man, and you're going to be like the man, the way that men are supposed to look. So God makes Adam, and I think he makes them as he's supposed to be, as men are supposed to be. As masculine as men are supposed to be, that's Adam. And we see in Adam's behavior, at least in the beginning, what I think is a very masculine behavior. Adam walked with God in the garden. He served as caretaker of creation. He walked side by side with his wife Eve. And Adam daily listened to God's direction. It says that God would come down in the garden and walk with Adam and Eve and they talked together. 
And Adam followed God's simple commands, at least in the beginning. Followed God's simple commands. I think this is what masculinity was meant to be. However, of course, we know the story of Adam and Eve. Adam faltered in this role when he stopped listening to God. When he stopped listening to God, he stopped being what God called masculine. And along with Eve, he ate the forbidden fruit, thus stepping out of the design for masculinity. Power, control, striving, this wasn't what was designed to be masculine. This is what came out of the fall. It was not the design for masculinity, rather it was a result of the fall. Now fast forward a few years to the second man in the Old Testament, who I think is, is manhood on display. And it's the man, King David. Now if you remember the story, the prophet Samuel was on the lookout for the next king of Israel. The, the current king of Israel was named Saul. The prophet Samuel was told by God, I want to I anoint a new king. And so Samuel's on the lookout for this new king. Who is going to be, and, and the promise is actually that this next king is going to be the greatest king that Israel will ever see. So Samuel goes to where God directs him, to the household of Jesse. He goes to Jesse's household, and Jesse is David's father. And he asked to see Jesse's son. Jesse, bring out your sons. I want to find which one of them is the next king of Israel. So Jesse brings out his sons. He brings out seven of them. And he stacks them, oldest to youngest. And, and Samuel shows up and he looks at these young men. And he's like blown away. Man, these are manly men. These are, these certainly. And he looks at the oldest and, he, and Samuel says, certainly this one. I mean, look how big he is. He's going to be the next king of Israel. And here's what God says to Samuel. As Samuel's awing over these young men, how amazing they are. God says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Okay, God, we get it. We're looking at, a, at another quality here, something that's internal, not power, not stature, not outward appearance. God is looking for something deeper. Seven sons of Jesse parade before Samuel, and the Lord does a hard pass on every one of them. So Samuel gets confused. He's looking around. There's no sons left. God had told him that the next son would be here in Jesse's household. So Samuel looks at Jesse and says, you got anything else? Like, what else? And Jesse says, well, I got one other boy. But like, I didn't even call him in from the field. Like, he's out tending the sheep. I've got another boy who's like, he's not even worth looking at. I didn't even bring him. Do you remember getting picked for teams when you were a kid? I don't know if you guys have this story. Maybe you were picked first. And when you were doing the sports teams, I was picked like last. And if not last, it was second to last. And I dreaded being picked for sports teams. I don't know if you remember this story that, uh, that, that you know, how, what it felt like to be picked for teams. Can you imagine not even being invited to the field to be picked? Not even being invited to, in the first place to see whether you would be on the team or not. This was David. David was left in the field. 
I don't know what, the, what it looked like that morning when Jesse was sitting around a breakfast table with his eight sons, and he's like, all right, Samuel is coming to anoint the next king. I want you seven to be ready. David, you just go sit in the field. It's not going to be you. But here, David shows up after being called back from the field, and God says to Samuel, that's my guy. That's my guy. And David became an amazing king. The best king Israel ever had. But get this. It was not David's power that made him the best. It was not his control. It was not his stature, his prominence, his fighting ability. No, do you remember what God says? Do you remember what God says it was that set David apart? Do you remember? David was a man after God's own heart. He was a man after God's own heart. A man who wanted what God wanted, who listened to what God said, who did what God asked him to do. This is what makes David a man's man. He oozes masculinity because he's a man after God's own heart. Now, David messed up big time too. David's life in a lot of parts of it is just a hot mess. You can see moments when David stops listening to God, doesn't do what God tells him to do. And when God doesn't listen, or when, when David doesn't listen to God, there are moments that are devastating in David's life. David tries in his own power to exert his control over situations. He, he falls to fear and, and shame and, and anger, and he doesn't listen to God. He turns away from God and does his own thing, and his life just goes chaotic. See, David also, though he was a man after God's own heart, he still succumbed to the broken masculinity of power and control. And yet, when we think of David today, what does God continue to focus on? In, in, in the book of Acts, he is, he is commended again that David was a man after God's own heart. That's what stood out. The grace of God is so good, isn't it? Now, fast forward again a couple of years to who I think is the, the ultimate symbol of masculinity for us, and that's, of course, Jesus. Now, Jesus preexisted Adam and David, these two pillars, I think, of masculinity in the Old Testament. Jesus preexisted them. Jesus has always been God, so he's always existed. Even before time began, Jesus was there. Jesus, in fact, created Adam and David. And he made both of them in his own image. So the masculinity that God designed, which reflected God's image so well, was by definition in Jesus because it came from Jesus. You guys get this? So Jesus designed masculinity. He made Adam and, and David. He designed masculinity. And so when Jesus came, he was full masculinity. Jesus is our, the, the epitome of masculinity. So if we want to know what true masculinity looks like, we must turn our eyes now to Jesus. Now in Scripture, much is made of this group of three men, Adam, David, and Jesus. Obviously, Jesus comes up a lot, but Adam and David show up a lot throughout Scripture. Adam being the first man, David being the best king over Israel, and Jesus, well, Jesus is just Jesus, right? He's pretty amazing. But he's also connected to both Adam and David. You see, Jesus is called the second Adam 
in 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul talks about uh, Jesus as being the second Adam there, and he also talks about Jesus being the second Adam in Romans chapter 5, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And much is also made about how Jesus came from the line of David. David may have been Israel's greatest king up until the point of Jesus, but look here at the promise that the angel gives to Mary in Luke chapter 1. Here's what the angel says to Mary as Jesus is about to be come into the world. He, speaking of Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So we get this picture of Jesus being connected with David. And we see this time and time again, all throughout the New Testament. There's these moments where Jesus is connected to Adam, where Jesus is connected to David, over and over and over again. And we see Jesus' life, and we see in Jesus the things that we've been seeing a little bit in Adam and a little bit in David, that Jesus was a man after God's own heart. And over and over in Scripture, we see Jesus doing what the Father told him to do. In fact, he says, I only do what I see my Father doing. Jesus honors his heavenly Father. Jesus obeys his heavenly Father. Jesus is constantly going to prayer to listen again to what his Father would say to him. Even at his most difficult moment, the night before he goes to be crucified, Jesus is praying in the garden. You can see the anguish of Jesus. Actually, Scripture says that he was in such anguish that he, he sweated drops of blood. And in Luke 22, Jesus, speaking of his crucifixion, says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. If there's another way, Father, for this to happen, I'd love for it to happen that way because I'm terrified of being crucified. But Jesus says this, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus did what both Adam and David did not do. When it came down to it, both Adam and David turned away from God. And in Jesus' deepest moment of, of, of grief, he turns towards God. Jesus did what Adam and David could not do. And Paul talks about it here in the passage I referred to earlier in Romans chapter 5. Speaking of both Adam and Jesus, here's what Paul says. He says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, all of creation fell into brokenness because of Adam's disobedience, so also through the obedience of the one man, that's Jesus, him going to the cross, the many will be made righteous. You see, Jesus, the second Adam, turns around what the first Adam created. Adam brought sin and destruction into the world because of his disobedience, because of Jesus' obedience to God. He broke the power of sin, broke the power of disobedience, broke the power of brokenness. Jesus made everything right. And not by power, though Jesus, being God, had all power. Not by control, though Jesus could have commanded anyone and everyone to do everything that he wanted and not by striving or selfishness or self-protection. No, it was the selfless, sacrificial love of Jesus that brought him to submit to the Father's will and ultimately to the cross. That is what biblical masculinity 
is all about. That is why Paul writes in Ephesians, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is God's design for biblical masculinity. Not power, not control, not lordship or striving, but selfless, sacrificial love. Submitting to the Father's will, listening to and obeying what God is speaking to us. See, men, you are designed to hear your Creator, to live a life of listening to your Heavenly Father and obeying His commands, to love selflessly and sacrificially. Husband or single, father or son, men, you are called to be masculine men. But masculinity, not as designed by the world, but masculinity is defined and designed by God. Masculinity that is defined as a man who is after God's own heart. A man who is after God's own heart. Now it's easy, uh, it's not easy, it's not easy these days for men. It really isn't. Between the world's many different warped views of masculinity and the general nastiness uh, that uh, comes from many towards masculinity, nowadays when you talk about masculinity, it's it's like a no-no thing. Don't talk about, last, last week, uh, Pastor Amy talked about money. And she mentioned how you're not supposed to talk about money. And, and there, it's like three things you're not supposed to talk about. What is it? It's money, politics, or religion, right? But I think we can add on to that. You're not supposed to talk about masculinity. Because people really, really are pretty nasty about masculinity nowadays. But part of the problem is that the world doesn't see many men, men standing in true biblical masculinity. That's based on selfless, sacrificial love and obedience towards God. Biblical masculinity does not diminish or subjugate others. It doesn't push others down in order to appear strong. It's humble leadership. It's sacrificial love. It's incredible meekness, which treats women with honor, walks in honesty and vulnerability, contends for the marginalized, looks after the widow and the orphan, is dedicated to the imitation of Christ's obedience to the Father. I dare to say that I think, I think the world would look differently at masculinity if that's what the world saw. Not, not a bunch of men trying to, to, be, to power up and to make everybody subject to them, but a bunch of men who served, who led, who walked in obedience towards God, and even if, the world, even if the world continued to despise biblical masculinity, this is the kind of masculinity that ushers in the kingdom of God. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, and you're listening to all this, this might all sound kind of strange. But I want to invite you today to step into this story, the story of Jesus. If you've been listening here today and you're not a Christian, I believe Jesus is inviting you to come to him, to learn his ways, to understand him better, to know how much you've been made in his image, to know how much he loves you. Jesus gave his life on the cross, the ultimate act of sacrificial love, so that you could become a friend of God, so that you could become a part of God's family. 
God loves you so much. Would you become, if you've not before, would you become a follower of Jesus today? It's simple. We're just going to take a moment right now. So everyone here, just close your eyes just for just a moment. If you want to become a Christian today, just say in your heart, Jesus, I want to follow you. Come and be my Lord and Savior today. I believe you died on the cross for me and rose from the dead. Come into my life and live in my heart. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Now, if you've prayed that prayer today, I encourage you to tell someone so that we can celebrate with you because you've just stepped into a, a, a relationship with God. And so we want to celebrate with you. Now, men, back to the men, I want to do something with you also today. You're going to get two blessings. Now, for Mother's Day, <clears throat> about a month ago or so, I guess, the, the moms only got one blessing. But today, men, you're going to get two blessings. I don't know. It's not fair, but that's how it is. So I'm going to pray for you and bless you here. And then after we sing a song together, Pastor Amy has a blessing for fathers as well. For men? For men. A blessing for men. So if you're a man here today, I want you to stand. Would you just stand, whether you're one day old or 99 years old. So if there's little babies in here that are male, like hold them up. Not like, you know, like, oh, but just kind of hold them up. Anyways. <clears throat> and women, wherever you are, you guys can reach a hand out towards these men. And uh, let's just pray. So men, I bless you with godly biblical masculinity. I bless you to live a life marked by selfless, sacrificial love. That you would hear the voice of your creator God. That you would know that you are made in the image of God. And that you carry God's Holy Spirit within you. I bless you to be a man after God's own heart. Hearing his call on your life and responding quickly in action to obey. I bless you to lead humbly. To treat women with honor. To walk in honesty and vulnerability. To contend for the marginalized. To look after the widow and the orphan. I bless you to be more and more like Jesus. Honoring God in everything you do. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you'd like more information about us or find out ways to contact us, visit our website at www.beaverlodgealliancechurch.com. We pray today that you would experience the love, presence, and power of Jesus Christ and then make him known.